Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be a very interesting night, as it is every Sunday here in Talk Junkies Studios, it, a.k.a. my basement. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you're interested in being enlightened or just learning about Vedic text or Vedic language or what Vedic is, tune in to the podcast I did on Wednesday. Johnny and Jesse weren't able to actually be there for that one, but it was a very interesting podcast. We had a PT with PT Speaks YouTube channel join the show, and he just kind of explains what Vedic is. A wonderful podcast, man. Very great podcast. So check that out. But this week is going to be very interesting. We have another author on to join Talk Junkies, which is always a beautiful thing, to talk about something very interesting, something that's very prevalent within media right now, which is aliens and what's going to happen with aliens. But no better person to bring on to talk about aliens and the experiences of a book that he wrote uh, wrote about. Uh, Ralph Blumenthal, how you doing, man? Thanks for joining Talk Junkies. Great. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, man. What led you to this book? You've written a few other books, and this is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this book's a little different than what you've written about before. So how did that kind of happen? It is. Uh, it is. This book is about uh, John Mack, a Harvard psychiatrist who got interested in alien encounters and alien abduction. Uh, and uh, that was a departure for him. And it was a departure for me to write the book because my whole career at the New York Times, 45 years, has been on very earthbound subjects like uh, the mafia, uh, cops, corruption, politics, uh, Nazi war criminals, you know, stuff like that. Um, not aliens, not UFOs. But um, I picked up a book by John Mack uh, when I was a correspondent in Texas in 2004. And I got really interested in the idea that a Harvard psychiatrist would be, uh, you know, involved in researching alien encounters. So that's what got me started. And um, I was going to give him a call, um, set up an interview. I didn't know that he was already so famous. And then I pick up a paper one day, a few days later, and uh, he'd been run over in London and killed by a drunk driver. So uh, that got me started. I started, you know, lo I looked up his family. I got access to his archives. And uh, one thing led to another. And I spent 16 years researching the book. Oh man, that's a long time, a lot yeah, of dedication. That's... It's also crazy that you, that right before he passed away, you already had the interest in going down that road. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot, it, we call it, you know, synchronicities, uh, things that happen that seem to be coincidences, but that seem, uh, are really connections on some level, cosmic level that we don't understand. So it turned out, by the way, that I had gone to City College uh, when John Mack's father was a professor there. And we kind of, uh, you know, crossed paths. And there were a number of things that happened like that. So uh, I, I think it was the cosmos reaching out to tell me to write this book. No, that's awesome. So let's just get a little bit into the book, man. What, what makes it so important and what's so fascinating about this book? I know because a lot of people are skeptical of aliens and if they're real and uh, you have, so, you know, it's like, it's like uh, Democrats and Republicans. Like they're just, you know, it's back and forth, like with people believing in it and people not. Um, within the book, and I haven't got a chance to read it yet, I'm sorry, because I did just get it yesterday. What kind of evidence in there suggests that they are real? Okay, well, uh, as I said, John Mack was very well grounded. He was a psychiatrist, uh, you know, with a lot of uh, high level credentials at Harvard. He had won a Pulitzer Prize, by the way, uh, writing a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and he had written a book on nightmares. So he was really uh, an expert in the workings of the human mind and psychic psyche. And um, so um, what happened is through a series of steps that I outline in the book, 
uh, he went out to Esalen in California, you know, the think tank, uh, there were a lot of interesting experiments and drugs were being, um, you know, experimented with in the 60s and 70s. Um, and um, he went out there in the 80s and uh, got interested in a, a breathing discipline, holotropic breathing, where you can change your level of consciousness by breathing, sort of like hypnosis or even like drugs without drugs, actually. So that kind of started to open him up to all these different, um, you know, uh, consciousness experiments. And then he heard about um, uh, a guy named Bud Hopkins, who was a, uh, an artist who was very interested in the subject of alien encounters. And he had, uh, you know, been interviewing people with stories of uh, in, in encountering aliens, et cetera. And first, uh, John Mack said that that was the craziest thing he ever heard. Uh, he didn't want to get involved in that. But one thing led to another, as I, I sort of outlined in my book. And um, he ended up meeting Bud Hopkins. And he uh, left with a bunch of letters that people had written Bud Hopkins about their experiences with aliens or what they remembered about or what they thought they remembered. You can, you know, take your pick on what level of, <coughs> of um, you know, how to characterize this. Anyway, they were convinced that they'd had these encounters. John Mack looked at the letters and said it, it was intriguing and he wanted to you know, look into it. So he surrounded himself with his own circle of so-called experiencers or abductees and um, he came away convinced that something had happened to them. And what convinced him are things that I outline in my book. We can talk about that next. But he became uh, very convinced that something happened. It wasn't clear what level, or what dimension these things happened in. It was not everyday reality, clearly, because we don't see it happening in front of us. And yet um, the stories people told were so compelling and the bits of evidence that emerged were uh, really so intriguing that he believed that something had happened. So, uh... <clears throat> Would you say that you're more convinced by by the researcher of your book that, that you believe in aliens? And I know that's kind of just a little bit off uh, off track right there, but ha, are you more in, were you a believer in alien encounters before doing any of this research? No, I wasn't, um, and I, I wouldn't say I'm a believer in alien encounters. What I will say is that I have followed the same trail of evidence that John Mack followed. Uh, I followed in his footsteps, so to speak. And I looked at, at his evidence and um, I find it very comp compelling. Um, it is a mystery. I don't solve the mystery in this book. I mean, that's a spoiler alert, okay? Right. <laughs> don't, don't buy this book, think you're gonna find out, you know, the truth about aliens. Um, at, at the most, it'll raise some interesting questions and it might destroy some preconceptions that you have. Um, for example, I will tell you that I'm now convinced um, that um, it's not a question of uh, in, in, in mental illness or insanity with these people, okay? They're not crazy. Uh, they're not, by and large, um, hoaxers out to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. They're not uh, publicity seekers looking to make a fast buck because, if anything, they're more uh, reluctant than, than anyone to uh, confide their experiences. They're ashamed by what happened. They don't understand. So a lot of the conventional explanations by the so-called skeptics fall, fall away. They're not nightmares because a lot of these things don't happen at night, okay? These encounters happen during the day. 
Um, it's not sleep paralysis because it doesn't always happen during sleep. Um, so one by one, the conventional, you know, you ask me if I'm a believer, I'll tell you one by one, the conventional explanations sort of fall away. What you're left with remains a mystery, but um, it's, it's an interesting mystery and you have to know enough about the subject. You can't just say, ah, these people are nuts or it's, it's nightmares. I mean, you have to, you know, read enough of the literature. You have to know enough of the, um, of the research to know what to be against or for. So, um, you know, the more you look into it, the more complicated it becomes. How did you choose which encounters that you put in the book? Because I'm sure that there was quite a few of, of, of his work that you saw a lot of these encounters. Was there some really bizarre encounters that you weren't able to actually put in the book? Or, or what are the most bizarre encounters? Are they in the okay. book? Okay. Uh, you know, one of the things about the, this whole area of alien uh, encounters or what, you know, people, uh, uh, you know, remember or record as their encounters with aliens is that one story is wilder than the next, okay? Um, and while, while there's a basic consistency to these stories, which is what convinced John Mack that there was something here, um, uh, there was a, you know, a, a, um, a general agreement as to what constituted these experiences. Uh, it wasn't true in all cases. There were enough differences uh, to make it really interesting. So. It, it couldn't be said that these people were reading off some playbook, you know, like they all got together and decided this is a story we're going to tell. So there was a basic story and then there were all these differences. So um, one story that, that uh, John Mack investigated that really was a book, turned out to be a book by Bud Hopkins, the guy who turned him onto the subject in the first place, um, concerned a woman um, who witnesses saw, witnesses actually uh, uh, came forward later and said they saw uh, being um, beamed out of her 11th floor window overlooking the Brooklyn Bridge in New York, uh, escorted by three uh, flying alien beings into a spaceship that flew off with her and then uh, plunged into the East River. Now, how's that for strange? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now uh, that's only the beginning. Um, the, uh, um, the story was uh, related to Bud Hopkins by two guys who said they witnessed it. Uh, and they, they said there were security guards who were escorting a VIP, a high level political figure to a meeting in New York. And they watched this happen and um, it, it, it turned out from their account that they probably were abducted too, along with the woman and the high level guy they were escorting probably got abducted too. And he turned out to be the secretary general of the United Nations, Javier Perez de Cuellar. Okay. Now, how's that for interesting, right? Very, that's crazy. Okay. Man. Now there's one problem with that story as, as Bud Hopkins, who, who wrote a book about it, found out. He never could identify the two guys who were the original witnesses. They sent him audio tapes, they sent him emails, they sent him letters, but uh, they never appeared physically. And he could not find uh, who they really were. And uh, when Javier Perez de Cuellar, the Secretary General of the UN was asked about it, um, including by uh, 
somebody who worked for the New York Times uh, on my behalf, uh, he told um, a kind of a mixed up story that didn't solve the problem either way. He didn't admit it, he didn't deny it, uh, he just didn't really answer. So like all these stories, and this is really what, what emerges from these, you know, most of these, uh, all these alien abduction stories is something unsatisfactory. It, it's never nailed down 100%. Uh, there's intriguing things that we can talk about, you know, why John Mack, uh, you know, thought they were so compelling, but it always falls short of absolute proof. Uh, that's one of the the hallmarks of this of this whole you know complicated genre is that it it doesn't lend itself to resolution. Um, so you know what are we left with? We're left with a mystery, but a fascinating mystery. But you have a Harvard professor, and and I think that's the most. I mean, that's one of the most credible people you could say. Hey, like if this guy is legitimately, he thinks that there these types of things are happening. I, that's interesting to me. That's not just the you know, a, a, my next door neighbor saying, hey, I saw an alien or, the, you well, know. That's right. I mean, he, he brought a lot of credibility to the story. So let's talk about uh, why he thought there was something here, what made it interesting for him, because as I said, he was he was a brilliant guy. He'd written books um, and uh, he was, uh, you know, a full-fledged uh, member in, in very good standing of the Harvard, of the Harvard uh, faculty. Uh, until they decided to investigate him and, and uh, they grew unhappy with his interest in the field. We'll talk about that too. But what, what um, convinced him that there was something here were a whole bunch of things. One was, it was a consistent, set of, uh, consistent story he was he hearing. These people were going about their business from all walks of life. They were men, women, young, old, blue collar professionals. Um, and um, at night, very often, but also during the day while they were driving or you know, all, all different times, uh, they became aware of the UFO landing in a proximity. Then these beings would materialize. The beings would take people um, through solid walls uh, into their ships for experiments on, on as kind of a slab table that was very commonly described by, by all the people. And uh, very often they were subject to reproductive experiments. The, the men had sperm taken, the women had eggs removed, and um, uh, you know apparently for production of a hybrid race and these people would uh, remember that they were abducted later again and shown their hybrid offspring, their children. Okay, so that was a common theme, but then there were many variations uh, to the story that intrigued John Mack. So everybody had a little, you know, different twist on it. Um, the fact that children, as young as as two and three years old, were telling some of these stories. Little man, take me up in the sky. You know, I fly in the sky. Meant to John Mack that these kids were not reciting you know, information from books they had read or movies they had seen. They were little kids. Um, um, uh, sometimes there were um, um, scars on people who came back who didn't remember having those scars when they went to sleep, let's say. Um, and uh, in one case, it was a paraplegic, who, who, a quadriplegic, excuse me, a quadriplegic 
completely paralyzed, who couldn't move and couldn't have inflicted the scars on himself. Uh, he remembered being abducted and coming up with these, you know, emerging with these scars. Um, uh, some, there was evidence of UFO landings in some cases, broken tree branches outside the house, things like that, with the grass pressed down. And probably most important of all, um, there were some corroborating witness accounts. Um, in one case, two girls on a sleepover, um, the mother of one of the girls came down during the night to check on them and found them missing. So she was, you know, terrified, called the police. They searched all over, didn't find the girls. And a few hours later, they turned up back in their beds. So, and then they remembered later that uh, they'd seen a UFO and they, you know, recalled some kind of an abduction experience. So here you had testimony from the mother saying that the girls were missing. So John Mack put all these things together. And the fact that these people were not crazy because he was a psychiatrist, he knew what crazy was. Um, and he said, uh, something has happened to these people, putting all these pieces together that he could not explain. And he said, if anyone can come up with an explanation that would, you know, uh, fit all these different, you know, uh, points, these different scenarios, uh, tell me what it is, I'll buy it. But no one ever has. So uh, basically, that's why he uh, felt that there was something to this and why I, following his reasoning, agreed that, yeah, there's something interesting going on here. It's it's weird because it's hard to say it like. You said there's no there's no actual resolution, which is the whole point of it. Is it is a big kind of like mystery and everything. Yet at the same time, you've got all these points of evidence leading towards the same thing. And it's like I'm usually out of the three of us in this room, I'm usually I would say probably the most skeptical or the most devil's advocate. I don't like to believe in a lot of stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm a big believer in I can never remember what it's called, Occam's Razor or whatever, where it's like if you take you take all these things and, you know, whatever's left, the simplest solution or whatever is usually the right one. Even if it's doesn't make sense to you, you have to take all the evidence there and be like, man, maybe this is not only plausible, but the most likely actual answer. That's right. I mean, uh, it, it's so difficult to swallow this whole idea because it's so, you know, uh, antithetical to everything we understand as reality. Okay, reality is something we can touch and taste and feel, smell, and suddenly uh, people are coming forward with these stories um, that seem outlandish to us. Um, certainly, I mean, I start my book off with a quote from um, an English scientist of the 1870s, uh, Sir William Crookes, who was sent out um, by other scientists to debunk a seance, okay? Um, and uh, he, he went to the seance and he saw musical instruments being played by themselves in a, in a locked cabinet. He saw people levitating and he came back and he, he told his fellow scientists, I saw all this stuff. He said, I never said it was possible. I only said it was true. <laughs> and <laughs> wow, that's... I, I use that quote at the beginning of my book because all this stuff sounds impossible. And, you know, we have to say that um, it, it does sound completely crazy. And then you go through the stories and, you know, John Mack's first book um, called uh, Abduction, Human um, uh, Encounters with Aliens, uh, traces 13 case studies. He took 13 people with these stories and he 
uh, interviewed them both, you know, under relaxation techniques or hypnosis and consciously checked their story backwards and forwards, um, spent, you know, many hours investigating their stories and laying it out in his book, 13 different people in great detail. And um, you need to read these stories before you come to any conclusion and say, well, this is crazy, this couldn't have happened. Because the stories these people tell, and, and again, what one of the things that convinced John Mack, I didn't say before, was the effect, the, the, um, um, uh, the, the way these people related their stories to him, convinced him as a psychiatrist that the stories were, were genuine to these people, okay? Um, and that, that was his business, to listen to people and decide what was going on in their minds. I mean, this is what he was trained to do. And um, he found their affect completely genuine, that they were not making it up or that they were not trying to fool him. In one case, he was fooled, which I talk about in the book, but that was an aberration. Um, in, in the other cases he cited, uh, he completely believed that the people were recounting something that was true to them and that he could not um, contradict by any evidence at his disposal. So, um, you know, as you say, it, 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 you look for the most, um, for the simplest explanation and his simplest explanation was um, nothing happened to these people other than what they said. <laughs> was there any case over... Um... All, all the people that he interviewed or hypnotized or anything, were they all negative experiences that, that they talk about? Or is it kind of like a mixed view? That's a very good question because uh, this is where John Mack differed uh, from his two colleagues, Bud Hopkins and uh, a professor named David Jacobs, who also uh, did research in this field. The three of them kind of were operating on parallel tracks and, uh, and collaborated at some point. Um, uh, let me tell you first what Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs found when they interviewed people. They found uh, the experiences pretty uniformly negative. The people were terrified. The aliens were uh, evil, basically. They were um, uh, tormenting the people with these experiments. And um, uh, it was a terrifying ordeal for the people. Um, and it was happening in absolute reality, uh, according to, to uh, Jacobs and, and, and Hopkins. John Mack found something somewhat different. First of all, he wasn't sure it was happening in absolute reality. It was some kind of interim state where uh, some other dimension was penetrating our dimension, let's say. Uh, so that was one thing. He couldn't, be, he couldn't say for sure that it was happening in absolute reality. But also, maybe even more important, um, he said that these people uh, had had a, a growth experience in some way as a result of their ordeal, that they came away um, more concerned about the fate of the planet, pollution. They came away with a feeling of love, uh, some kind of love for these beings, uh, and 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 a feeling of, of love permeating the cosmos. Um, almost um, a greater awareness of a benign power in the universe, whether they called it God or the source or something. So uh, they were also traumatized. John Mack certainly found that, that they were very troubled by their experience. 
but uh, there was some growth involved, uh, according to him, uh, according to him, to having talked to them. So that's that. If that answers your question, yeah, he it was not uniformly negative, uh, in 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 the way he understood it from the people he talked to. Very interesting. Did he throughout this process? Did he ever have an encounter himself? No, he didn't, and uh, that's another interesting thing. Um, uh, he always thought um, he was missing out on something. Um, and then he realized it was probably better, actually, for him not to have any experience, experiences. He never even saw a UFO um, because that way he thought he was pure. I mean, he was not, you know, sort of uh, pursuing some agenda to convince everybody that what happened to him was something genuine. He was always on the outside looking in. I'm the same way. I have not had any abduction experience. I've not seen a UFO. So I came to this, like he did, sort of pure, maybe reluctantly, maybe I'm missing out, maybe I'm jealous, but it's not the kind of thing that you can arrange, by the way. And this is something that, that is also an interesting observation, that science needs to investigate the people who have not had abduction experiences uh, just like they have to investigate people who have had, because th there's some reason those who have, have had it, presumably there's a reason, and, and the same reason that people who have not, have not. So what is it about people? It also seemed to run in families that if somebody was abducted or claimed to have had an abduction experience, chances that their parents and grandparents and their children also had or would have these experiences. So what that means is anyone's guess, but that seems to be a, uh, a hallmark of this whole phenomenon. But um, again, to answer your question, John Mack never did. And, um, and why not? <laughs> Who knows? Well, that, that would be a big argument against it actually being just a genetic or mental problem if it's, if it's going with the family. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this is a passed down trait. You know, people are just having hallucinations and all this. But also at the same time, arguing for the other side that the the abductions are real is probably genetic. I mean, that's probably one of our best guesses why they're doing anything. Like you said, reproductive stuff like that. Like genealogy. Getting, yeah, and genealogy, all this, which also would fit them going into families too. So that almost doesn't help. I feel like any good answer you have also has, you know, some <laughs> other like pro and con to it whenever it comes to the argument. Right. Um, I had another question for you real quick. Um, has it been charted over like everybody's experience? Was there ever like a year when it just spiked when, oh man, there's like a 300% increase in people who are being abducted or is it just fairly consistent uh, throughout time? That's a good question. Well, there has not been uh, very good research statistically in this. Um, uh, what, what does seem clear, what is interesting, that the first uh, um, widely publicized abduction case uh, happened in 1961 with uh, Betty and Barney Hill, of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. It happened to them in 1961. They kept it quiet for two, a couple of years till the story kind of leaked out. Uh, this was the couple who were driving home through the White Mountains, mountains of New Hampshire where they and this is by their own account, they spotted a, um, a UFO trailing them. Uh, they, they sort of panicked, the car stopped, um, they, they got out, they saw a, a craft landing, 
uh, beings uh, came out of it, captured them basically, took them aboard for certain experiments, ripped Betty's dress, and then released them. And they got home hours late. Uh, their mind was fogged. They didn't remember what had happened. And then later in hypnotic sessions with another psychiatrist, long before John Mack got on the scene, uh, they, re they recount, they recaptured, let's say, uh, remembered or thought they remembered uh, all these things that happened to them, uh, meeting alien beings and being experimented on and having conversations with the aliens because the, the aliens were communicating telepathically, which is another aspect of, of the encounters. They, their eyes are very um, hypnotic and mesmerizing, according to people who've you know, told these stories, and the, the words just pop into their heads. So they, uh, the, they, they get messages from the aliens uh, telepathically. So Betty and Bonnie Hill told this whole story. And after that, uh, a lot of other accounts began to emerge. Now, um, did that start some kind of mass hysteria? Uh, were these accounts going on all the time, but the people didn't come forward? Uh, it's hard to say, but certainly starting in the 60s, uh, many, many accounts started to materialize and books were written by Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and, and, and John Mack himself uh, interviewing these people. So there were then, you know, hundreds of people, let's say, coming forward with these accounts. Um, but no census was ever made um, because it's such a difficult topic and how would you even begin to, you know, interview people? Excuse me, have you ever been abducted? Um, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, can we interview you? You know, so they had to wait for people to come forward. Uh, people were very shy about it. John Mack uh, had a, a very difficult time, you know, calming people down enough to talk to him. Uh, some of them went to see other psychiatrists and then left, you know, upset that the, people, the other psychiatrists didn't believe them. So anyway, um, it, it's an underground thing. It's not an easy, um, uh, you know, syndrome to to get your arms around. The, the, so to answer your question, no, it's it's not possible to say, um, you know, this year there were these many, then the next year there. Oh, do we lose him? I think we might have lost you. I hope not. You there, Ralph? You might just have to reboot. Uh... Is it through Zoom or Skype? You might just have to end it and send him another. Oh, uh, you know, who knows? We did lose you there for a second. Yeah, we lost you for a solid like 10 to 15 seconds, I think. But I think we're good now. Okay, so, so hold on to go to, to go with your question. Sorry, Jesse, and you've been a New York Times writer for you were for twenty years. So to kind of add to that question, what did you ever like? I mean, because whenever you're investigating uh, news sources or you're you're about that, like, did you ever like? Was it consistent? Did you have opportunities to like meet these types of people? Granted, you didn't know John Mack at the time. You didn't know you were going to write this book about the believer. But were you exposed to these people in New York, the one of the highest populations in the country, about alien encounters? Never, no. Wow, not on my radar screen at all. Uh, until I, I until I started working on the John Mack book, I wasn't even aware. I mean, I guess 
you, you know, you, you go in the supermarket line and there'll be a, a headline in one of the supermarket tabloids, you know, I was captured by aliens, but you write that off as, um, you know, as uh, some kind of silly mythology or so. Um, so I paid no attention to it. it. May you know some other people may have taken it more seriously. It was not in my on my radar screen. I was doing you know really down to earth reporting on very um, you know conventional subjects like you know the mafia and and corruption and cops and stuff like that. Um, so to answer your question, no, I I didn't talk to these people. I didn't even know that it was was out there. Um, I, you know, I, I read science fiction when I was a kid because that was a big deal when I was growing up after the war. Um, it was a big thing, science fiction, because everybody was talking about space and, you know, traveling to Mars and the moon. And, um, but uh, that was fiction, you know, science fiction. Um, I didn't take it seriously. I, I was interested in it, but then I basically, you know, outgrew it. I did other things. So to answer your question, I'd never come across that till I, um, I ran across the John Mack story. And then I was, I was captured like he was by the fact that there were, it was all this information out there that, that seemed mysterious. Is it hard to, man, I feel like this is such a hard subject to research for the simple reason that since it's so estranged and so out there, you're going to have lots of people who are faking it you know, that aren't genuine, that are doing it, like you said at the beginning, for publicity or for stature or because they want to seem like interesting people or whatever, since it's such like an out there subject. So, I mean, did you find it, do you know if John Mack found it difficult or did you yourself find it difficult at all narrowing down the people who are telling you their truth and what they believe compared to people who are like just making it up? You know, people making it up is not an issue at all because people do not come forward. This is not a subject people like to volunteer. Um, and I know that maybe uh, intuitively people think, oh, there's all these publicity seekers out there. They want attention. They're going to tell. Not true. These are not stories that anybody wants to tell uh, if, it didn't ha if, if, if they didn't feel that it actually happened to them. On the contrary, they don't want to talk about it. It takes a lot of work to convince people to open up. Uh, if you hear, for example, from somebody that somebody you know told somebody else that they had, let's say, an abduction story or something like that, something they saw you have, or something weird happened to them, um, it's a hard job to get them to come forward. First of all, they might talk to you anonymously, if at all. They sure don't want use of their name. They sure don't want their picture taken. Um, because they're ashamed. It's so weird and so strange. They feel their job would be in jeopardy. Their neighbors will look at them funny. Um, you know, uh, so the whole idea that, again, the so-called skeptics or debunkers who are, you know, putting forth all these theories of how they know what, what's really going on, they have it all wrong. It's not a, a publicity thing. And nobody wants to be known as an experiencer or an abductee because there's only negativity associated with it. They're gonna be laughed at, ridiculed, lose their jobs. Um, so that is not an issue, period. Uh, you know, people making stuff up. Now, could there be somebody, uh, you know, with some kind of agenda? Yes, there was in John Mack's case. A woman came forward to him. She wanted to uh, bring him down for a lot of complicated reasons. And she made up a story, which he being kind of a naive, 
a guy in some ways and being very open because th this whole um, uh, research effort that he embarked on made him uh, open to a lot of strange stories, okay? So he was trying to, to sympathize with people and trying to understand their stories. So he was vulnerable, he was left open. Um, as a part of this process that he was engaged in. He wasn't as skeptical as, as he should have been all the time. Uh, he wanted to encourage people to come forward, which, which helped him understand um, the situation in many cases. But in one case, it opened him up to um, um, a real debacle. I mean, this woman made up a story that he went for and uh, she later said it wasn't true. Now. What makes it more interesting is that she probably was an experiencer all along because she had told other people um, stuff that made John Mack realize that she, she uh, probably had, she was speaking with knowledge of, of, of what an experience was. Um, and then she pretended she wasn't an experiencer and she was making it up. She probably was, but either way, the story she told him was made up. It was a very sensational story. Um, he's, he was interested enough to, to look into it. And then um, um, she basically you know, pulled the plug and uh, told Time Magazine the story and they used it to ridicule him. So a lot of the media had an agenda to hold him up to ridicule. And in this case, uh, it worked. He, he really suffered and then um, Harvard, uh, you know, uh, uh, set up an investigating committee to look into him and, and in, the, in the end exonerated him of any wrongdoing, but it was a very uncomfortable situation for him, cost him a lot of money in legal fees, and um, uh, it, it definitely hurt him. I was going to say, even by, and just in the world in general, even by being exonerated, it's still, the moment you're accused of something, you already go through. You're the stigma. You, well, yeah, the stigma and the the punishment of having to pay all this money, legal fees, all this different stuff. So and reputation too. That's, yeah. And reputation, like even, even at the end, if they're like, oh, not guilty, it doesn't matter. You've already been drugged through the dirt. That's right. People remember that. They yeah. take it away. And, you know, if they remember one thing, you know, somebody might remember, oh, yeah, well, didn't Time Magazine do a story about him, you know, and take him down? And you have to know enough about the story to know that that wasn't the final word. But definitely it, 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 it does impact your reputation. Do you think it had anything to do with, and you were talking about her actually possibly being, uh, having abductive experiences um, in her own life to where she had this denial of it and just an absolute hatred for the whole concept of it and was just, like, because why else attack that individual over something if you didn't, like, what's the motive? I'm just trying to think of what her absolute motive of trying to, like, take him down would be. Well, that's a good question. And, you know, um, uh, at, at one point, one of John Mack's uh, supporters confronted her and said, why did you do this? You know, what, what is your motive? And she said something very weird. She said, because that's how Hitler started. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In other words, comparing, first of all, John Mack was Jewish. But anyway, comparing him to a cult leader uh, and comparing him to Hitler uh, and saying that she was out there to protect the world from, from him. Um, that was what she said. Now, what her real motivation was, was she trying to aggrandize herself at his expense? I mean, you know, you could speculate endlessly. Uh, he found that she had not been honest um, um, 
in her dealings with his organization. Let's put it that way. I don't want to go into uh, a lot of detail because I'm careful in the book uh, not to, um, you know, uh, set up any any libel situation. But John said some things about her um, involvement in his group that might explain uh, her her mental state or her her you know posture toward him. But wh- whatever the reason, uh, it was very damaging to him. And as I said, Time Magazine jumped on that with a negative story. Then Harvard, um, you know, used that to as as one of the uh, explanations for why they they needed to look into him. And uh, you know, one thing led to another. But I don't want this to I don't want people to think that you know he was badly damaged by this. And he bounced back. Uh, he made it gave a very good account of himself. He was basically exonerated by the Harvard committee. Um, his books spoke for themselves. He was on Oprah. He was uh, written up in the New York Times. Uh, he had a lot of positive coverage. Um, and at the end of the day, as I say in my book, he emerges as a kind of a hero because he wouldn't let um, things stop him. He was courageous enough to risk his career in a very disreputable business you know, of, of aliens. I mean, uh, uh, it takes a special kind of courage not to turn your back and say, I'm not going to get involved in this. This is not going to do me any good. Uh, he was genuinely mystified, as we all should be, uh, by these experiences, by these uh, stories. Uh, how real are they? Uh, what explains them? Why them and not me? Um, it, it, it is so, the more you look into it, the, it is so strange and, uh, and, and so without explanation. Uh, that you got to get caught up in the mystery. Did he did he work with any other high end individuals? Did he bring any on anyone on his team that was kind of like up there in the echelons of Harvard and stuff like that? Or was it just something he went on alone with? Pretty much alone. He had um, quite a few, um, uh, you know, assistants who were uh, professional social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, but he was the star. I mean, that was the thing. Um, people who um, studied him, uh, looked into his operation later, said he was at the pinnacle, um, and that was his makeup. He was uh, he liked the publicity. Um, he was very charismatic, a tall, you know, blue-eyed, uh, sort of magnetic kind of personality. Uh, he didn't want to share the limelight, particularly with anybody else. Uh, plus, there was nobody who was as credentialed as he was. It was not like he could find a better psychiatrist to team up with because he was, you couldn't get better than him in terms of his experience. He had, you know, um, set up clinics for for the poor, for the mentally um, uh, disabled. Uh, He had done all kinds of things because of his his, um, uh, research into Lawrence of Arabia. He, He became an expert in the Middle East. He traveled to the uh, Middle East to meet with Yasser Arafat to try to make peace with the Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, you know, he did all these things. He, he uh, campaigned against nuclear weapons. He was arrested in Nevada, you know, trying to ban nuclear weapons. He was arrested with his whole family. So he was right up there in terms of uh, prestige. And, um, uh, uh, you know, so there was nobody that he would uh, associate with who could be you know, more famous than he was in terms of, you know, with professional 
credentials. Or even on a supplemental level. Like, he's already got so much covered that there's not somebody else he can bring in to right, help him out right. with the project. I think that would just add more credibility to it, though, if he were to bring yeah, in well, other you know, people on. you got to be careful that, with that, too. That's a good point. Harvard said uh, when they listed his mistakes, um, they said what you should have done, John, was associate yourself with other uh, academics uh, at Harvard to study this. And that was a good point. Uh, he should have, and later he did. He did set up um, a study group with other academics at the Harvard Divinity School um, to get other perspectives on this, but that didn't satisfy Harvard. They said, you didn't pick the right people. You didn't have enough of them, but um, he, he, they also faulted him for not publishing uh, in peer reviewed journals before he published his book. And he said he tried. He got rejected by um, the New England Journal of Medicine, by a psychiatry journal. Uh, nobody wanted to tackle what he had to say. Um, so um, it would have been nice if he had uh, published in a peer reviewed journal um, or gathered around him other you know, prominent uh, professors of different disciplines. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. That probably would have helped him, but that wasn't his makeup. Did he, so he, he would have died in what, like the early 2000s? He died in 2004 when he was run over in London, you know, looking the wrong way down the street. And it was not a, an assassination, as some people said at the time, you know, because he was so prominent and they were, you know, and, uh, alien abduction was such a controversial field that there were rumors that he'd been assassinated. Not true. I checked it out. It's all in the book. Uh, they know exactly who ran him over. The guy had had too much to drink. Um, you know, he was not associated with any UFO. But hold group. on, but hold on. That's that sounds like some mafia stuff because you know about the mafia, man. <laughs> not everything it, has to be conspiracy, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes but stuff just happens. Hold Sometimes on. stuff just happens. Tell me that. Tell me though, Ralph. The mafia does some some crazy stuff like that too, where they can put it on the books and make you believe it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I looked into that, so I know sure. when the mafia does a hit. First of all, they want it to be known that it's the mafia because that's part of the message. But I tell you what happened, though, and I talk about this in the book. This is really weird. Um, while John Mack, he went to London for a, a T.E. Lawrence conference, okay? It was like uh, 30 years since his book came out, and they, he was a big hero to the Lawrence people. So they wanted to have him back to talk about Lawrence of Arabia and, you know, what he found. His book, as I said, won the Pulitzer Prize. So he's in London, and... Um, um, the, the night he got killed, he got out. He, he walked out of the uh, underground, the subway station, late at night. Um, he was probably tired. Uh, a lot of things were going on, and in London, you Americans often look the wrong way, <laughs> you know, down the street because the traffic comes from the other way. So at at that moment, one of his um, uh, colleagues from Harvard, a psychiatrist who uh, had studied with him, happened to be in Russia. At a, at a conference with his wife in St. Petersburg. And he had just landed at the airport and he was driving in a taxi to his hotel and he looks out of the window and he sees a guy getting run over. And uh, he sees it out of the corner of his eye and it happened you know, to the side and his, his taxi driver didn't even notice it, kept on going. And he was very upset because he just watched the guy get run over. And later when he gets back to the States, he finds that his friend John Mack had been run over about the same time in London. Wow. I mean, that's weird. Really weird. That's weird. 
Yeah, just a coincidence, I guess you could the, say. The, man, man. The world's full of those. It's crazy. Yeah. Did he ever, and yeah. I, I'm going to steal a question from you, Johnny, but I mean, since it's kind of, he was alive during those times, did he have any interactions with Bob Lazar by any chance? He, not that I could see, no. Um, but, um, you know, that's a whole interesting question of, you know, uh, Bob Lazar and other people doing research and um, retrieve craft and stuff like that. But uh, no, I, I didn't come across anything, uh, any interaction with, with uh, Bob Lazar. Okay. Because that, that, that would have been just, that would have been the icing on the cake right there, <laughs> if that were the yeah. case. Well, you know, what was interesting, though, is that, and I have this at the end of the book, that um, um, he got, inter- after alien abduction, he got interested in survival of consciousness, life after death. Uh, he got very friendly with a young woman. Um, who was doing great research. She was very talented and uh, anomalous research like he was. And um, she ended up studying uh, brain cancer patients and the power of prayer to heal them. And, he, and she found that prayer, distant prayer did seem to have a, uh, was a factor in helping them recover. And then she died of brain cancer herself. And um, he was studying her case because he, he heard that uh, she seemed to send messages from, you know, from the beyond after she died to her family. So he was very interested in this whole idea of uh, what happens after death. And after he died, uh, people uh, told me that they got messages from him. And uh, I put that at the end of the book, and I didn't want it to overshadow the book because, you know, it's very speculative. There's no proof, you know. But it was interesting that uh, people had very distinct stories of him appearing uh, with messages for them. Like via dreams? uh, I don't know what you make of that. (laughs) Like in their dreams or? or... Well, in one case, it was a dream, but I'll tell you how real it was. It's one woman who had been uh, to England with him studying crop circles said she had a dream that um, after, he, after he died, that she was walking the street and she saw him and he came over to her and uh, said, hello. And she said, you know, you're dead. And he said, yeah, I know. Uh, and he said, come on, let's go to, rest, to this restaurant. So they go into this restaurant. She's, she's telling the story and she's sitting next to him on the banquette and she was wearing a sleeveless dress and he was wearing a a short sleeve shirt and his arm touched her arm and and he was burning hot. And she said, John, you're burning me. And he said, yeah, that's that's so you'll know I'm real. Okay, now, was that a dream? She said afterwards, it was more than a dream. I mean, uh, she felt it was real. other people had similar stories. So, you know, she wasn't the only one. But again, I didn't want that to become the whole story, but it just, it was interesting. That's all I can say. Yeah, you're, you're adding on a whole nother layer there of something that's already really hard for people to grasp at the beginning, and then you're just throwing more onto it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I yeah, say, I we, see we talk about that a decent amount where it's like, if you throw in too much yeah, you just lose everybody. Too much you, you don't want to lose everybody all, yeah. all at once. You got to ease them in. I, I would have felt a short chase. I, I said, look, it's not the same as the rest of the stuff. Some of the, the other stuff has more, uh, you know, documentary backup. Uh, this doesn't, this is anecdotal, but what the hell? I mean, that's what people told me. And I thought it's worth mentioning. Definitely. 
um, just for speculation. But anyway, has he ever reached out to you at, at no. all? No. Well, you know what? It's inter- yeah, no, not really. But in in writing the book, I did feel I was getting downloads from somewhere because sometimes in the middle of the night, thoughts would pop into my head about what I had to put in. Now it could be my brain working overtime just because I, you know, spent all day, you know, wrestling with stuff. And then at night when your brain relaxes, you start thinking of things. But I really did have the impression that I was, ideas were being sent to me somehow um, more than once um, things to put in the book. Now, again, it would be too much to say John Mack was telling me how to write the book, but um, because my brain was, was obsessing with this, um, it's not unreasonable to think it was coming up with ideas or ideas were being sent to me somehow, but either way they found their way into the book. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to miss anything because I, I believe on the cover, it does say hard science. Have you spoken about that hard science within this conversation or is there yeah. more to the hard science than, than that's, it's a good point. I start my book uh, with a conference at MIT that John Mack uh, attended or set up with a, an atomic uh, physicist at MIT. Um, and they brought together a whole bunch of esteemed scientists, atomic scientists, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, folklorists, um, religion scholars, and they were all grappling with the question of what um, this alien abduction business was all about from, from their different standpoints. And they produced a thick volume, which I have on my bookshelf right next to me here, called Alien Discussions. It came out two years after the conference in 1992. And it's all the papers that were delivered. And it, it really is mind blowing to read it because you have uh, eminent scientists uh, including a guy, one guy who helped assemble the atomic bomb dropped on uh, one of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan, um, who are, are using their expertise to try to figure out uh, the answer to this mystery because they all agreed it was a mystery. It was not. It was not something that could be easily explained. Like these skeptics say, "Oh, it's you know, it's, it's a nightmare. Oh, oh, these people are crazy. You know, I, I have the answer." That's what they always say. But the more you go into it. It's not that simple. So here are all these eminent scientists and scholars trying to figure out and they're telling stories and they're showing their research. I mean, it's more complicated than I could ever explain now. And I take the beginning of the book really to, to lay it out. And I have a chapter on it with all these you know, eminent scholars using their best uh, insights to try to figure out the answer. Now they never provided the answer because there is no answer that we know of yet, but at least they were able to, to shed light on, um, on different theories, let's say, and, uh, and show why simple explanations don't, don't cut it. So to answer your question, yeah, I did consult scientists and used uh, scientific papers to look at this from uh, a rigorous scientific point of view to figure out, you know, what, what this mystery really boils down to and the answer is nobody knows well we've had a uh, rebecca hardcastle right on she, i don't know if you've heard of her she's an author and I know her. yeah she was very interesting i'd be curious if just go ahead sorry go ahead johnny oh i was just gonna say i like the i just i'm different 
thing, but I like the fact that you said that we don't know of yet. Cause like sometimes I have to remind myself and even like the viewers out there and the listeners and stuff that like, man, it wasn't too long ago in human history that we thought, you know, the rain and the sun and the clouds came from like gods and different beings and stuff. Like that's the whole thing that's so great about, in my opinion, science is that there's all these things that we don't have an explanation for. So we create an explanation for them. And then later we find out more about it. Gravity right now, we think it's, you know, the mass of planets and mass, everything's got gravity, all this. And it's like, who knows, man? Maybe maybe ghosts are real, maybe aliens are real, and maybe one day the conversation, maybe that'll be like, we'll be talking about it the way that we talk about the sun god Ra and all that stuff now, where it's like, you know what? We just didn't know how to explain it. We didn't know how to explain consciousness and all this, so we made stuff up for it, but now we can scientifically prove it. Right, well, science is not standing still. Certainly physics is moving really fast, and they're, you know, they're seeing things there... Look, 95% uh, of the makeup of the universe is still unknown. You know, um, dark energy and dark matter are myst complete mysteries. Scientists, physicists do not know what constitutes the bulk of, of matter and energy in the universe. They are learning things. They're finding particles like the, you know, the um, Higgs, uh, uh, um, Higgs boson, Higgs boson <laughs> that they found, you know, underground after 30 quadrillion, you know, collisions. They found one particle. And I say that in my book, too, if they would ever devote the kind of money to looking into, you know, these alien experiences that they're voting to taking pictures of, of um, um, uh, black holes, you know, 58 million light years away, they put some of that scientific expertise into what's going on with these alien encounters, they might learn something. But it's true, science is, um, is making progress. And you know what? Um, the New York Times stories that I worked on starting in December 2017 that verified uh, actually the, the physicality of UFOs, they really do exist. No one knows what they are, but the Navy videos prove um, that they are physically real. They didn't know that before a few years ago. So that's something new. And that, uh, that's a real breakthrough. Now that's a far cry from aliens. And when I write in the New York Times, um, we don't talk about aliens because we don't know enough about them. I mean, we, you know, um, it's hard enough to talk about UFOs, but at least with UFOs, we can now say that um, they've been caught on radar, they've been seen by pilots, the best you know, observers we have, they've been caught on thermal imaging devices, gun cameras, and, and they're real. Beyond that, nobody knows, but you couldn't have said that a few years ago, uh, whether they were real or not. Now, now we know they are real, so that's a breakthrough. It's crazy. I have my, my parents are in their 70s, and I was having a conversation with them not too long ago, and, and they're, they're very religious Christian people, and even they're like, yeah, aliens are probably a thing. I'm like, this is so weird. You would have been saying this like 10 years ago, but no, you're right. It, it's changed really quick. Um, I don't know if it had to do with ancient aliens from the History Channel that maybe brought it. I, I have a feeling that's what really brought it mainstream and out from the other, underground for people, but... Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's changing really quick as far as people people's perception on aliens. But yeah, well, uh, again, I mean, it's a much harder sell the alien story. Uh, it's much more difficult to verify because you know UFOs have been caught on video and film. Aliens have not been caught on film, uh, not that I know of, and I think I'd know. Um, so it's much harder to 
you know, to, to, to verify, to prove those stories. It's all anecdotal. But as John Mack found, these people are coming forward with very compelling stories uh, they, that, that are, you know, they're not made up uh, uh, deliberately. They're not products of mental illness. Um, perfectly ordinary people are encounter encountering these experiences. We don't know how or why, or, you know, but, um, and yet, uh, it's a far cry from UFOs we can deal with at this point. Aliens, it's much more difficult. I'm, oh, man. I know that uh, most of your writing before you said you, it was a lot of like the mafia stuff and, you know, crooked cops and all this kind of stuff. Was it like, was it harder to, this is such a far cry from the other kind of stuff that you've written about. Was this like a lot more difficult for you to do because there's not those same connections there? It wasn't more difficult because journalistically, um, it's the same process. You you look for um, archival information. I had access to all John Mack's uh, files, um, including his his private journals, which the family gave me access to, um, his own therapy sessions, um, which he taped in many cases. Um, and uh, I followed the same process that I follow with, with my reporting in the New York Times and other books I've done. The subject may have been different, but the process is the same. You, you, you go with um, um, reliable sources, you vet the information, you check it, um, you, know, you judge the credibility of people. Uh, you, you know, and I have a big section on sources in my books. So you can go back and see where stuff came from. So the subject was different, but the process was really the same. And uh, it's how I was trained for 45 years at the New York Times. You, you go with solid information, you give your sources, you, you explain what you know and what you don't know, and, uh, and you be honest with readers. And so I, I didn't find it uh, a, a big leap uh, in that sense. Cool. That's... We're a little bit over uh, a little bit over the hour, man. So I don't know if you guys have any lasting questions, but Ralph, I greatly appreciate you joining Talk Junkies, man. It's been fascinating. I'm definitely gonna have to look into some of your mafia books, man, because I got down with the mafia when I was younger. It was always a fascinating subject for me. <laughs> you got down with the mafia? Well, I didn't get down. You know, you know what I'm saying. It was just very interesting and intriguing. And if you ever had some more spare time in the future to join Talk Junkies again to talk about the mafia, that would be amazing. Yeah, no, I'd be glad to. It was a different. It's a, it is a different thing, but in the end, you know. Uh, maybe aliens are our mafia today. Our new mafia. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Just because you were talking about the mafia, just real quick, does the mafia even still exist? Are they even still a thing anymore? Yeah, just real quick. Exists. Still exists. It's it's redu It's it's uh, not as powerful. There was recently a huge uh, worldwide, uh, you know, um, series of arrests. Um, but uh, you know, whenever there's a way to prey on human weakness, uh, there'll be a you know, a, a crime group that'll find a way to do it, whether it's drugs or prostitution or loan sharking. Um, it doesn't have the power it, it had. And they're now, I mean, the Italian mafia has been reduced in, in, in power and, and strength. Uh, but there are other crime groups, you know, from other ethnic groups. Um, so, you know, there'll always be some kind of organized crime. Uh, and now with Bitcoin and, you know, uh, um, the... Um, uh, um, hacking, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of lucrative new uh, possibilities for crime groups. They don't have to do the old bank robberies anymore, you know. 
Um, you make more money online than you can money. beating someone up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's still around and it, it, it'll, it'll be with us. So there'll be opportunities for other writers to come along and, and uh, chronicle that. Interesting. I didn't want to take it off subject. I just had to ask real quick. Yeah. I don't ever think of like, I think of like gangs and stuff. I just never think mafia anymore. Like, I don't know. I don't like either, you don't yeah. see a dude in, I saw in the three piece suit. <laughs> You know, in the you know, in the nice car no, and all that. You know, I don't there know. was a, a recent article, and I don't know which uh, mafia boss it was, and I don't know where exactly it was at, but he did get arrested, and I'm not sure where or when. But yeah, it was there was re- a big. Uh, that's right. There was a big uh, series of busts uh, in Italy and uh, and elsewhere. Uh, now you know, there's much more coordination uh, among um, uh, law enforcement groups. The U.S. And, and the Italians used to not cooperate. And that helped the mafia because, uh, you know, they, they could get away with stuff. Now there's much more, co- you know, cooperation. Um, and uh, law enforcement has learned a lot. I wrote a book about the uh, Pizza Connection case, which was a big FBI uh, drug investigation in the 70s. And um, they learned a lot in the course of that, that case. So, uh, but it's still out there. The world's getting smaller. It's harder to be a criminal. I yeah. can't go rob a bank and then just go overseas and everything's okay. <laughs> well, Ralph, I mean, is there where can we find you, man? I know you got a website. We got your book right hey, here in yeah. the middle. Um, all um, those things will be in the link below, but if you want to shout it out real quick. Sure. Um, my website is Ralph Blumenthal, R-A-L-P-H-B-L-U-M-E-N-T-H-A-L.com, www.ralphblumenthal.com. Lists all my books, lists all my articles, lists all my speaking podcasts, et cetera, um, my biography. Uh, the book is available at independent bookstores. I love to plug them in addition to Amazon because they, the bookstores need a lot of help these days. Uh, if, you, if they don't have it in stock, they'll get it for you. Amazon, of course, has it. Um, Kindle, you can get it instantly uh, on your uh, device and there'll be an audio book next month. So if you uh, don't like to read or you want to listen in your car, you can have that next month. So um, the book is widely available and doing very well, I'm happy to say. So, uh, and thanks to guys like you who helped me talk about it. Uh, questions are good and uh, it gets the word out. So uh, I appreciate that. For sure. I appreciate, appreciate you, man. You which, on. which, by the way, man, your Google reviews and, and other places I look for on reviews, five out of five, man, on your book. So well done, man. And, and just just the amount of time and effort you put into something like that. It's just it's, you know, it takes a lot of work and greatly appreciate you joining Talk Junkies, man. Um, look forward to talking to you in the future. You, I don't know if you guys have anything else, but you, you took my big question that I was that I was building. It was the Bob Lazar one, man. Yeah. That was going to be my ending one for this. You, you took be the next show. book. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ralph, thanks for joining, man. You have a fantastic night. We'll chat with you soon. OK, terrific. Thanks, guys. All right. really Cheers. Bye bye. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ralph Blumenthal. A little different, you know what I'm saying, than what we're used to. Not anything like hardcore, like conspiracy or anything like that. But, I mean, it was definitely interesting. Oh, oh, very interesting. See, I, always, yeah. I, I actually get off on those kind of conversations because they're more grounded. Right. I honestly, like, man, when you can talk about stuff that's kind of out there, but grounded with, like, evidence and facts and all this, I love it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I greatly appreciate Ralph coming on, man. I can't, hopefully... Again, we'll talk about the mafia sometime down the road. Oh man, there's months. so many. I feel like just hearing I his to, like background story, I was like, man, we don't need like aliens yeah. is cool for this one, dude. Yeah. But man, I have so many more questions. He said he he started in Vietnam, so he could talk Vietnam War. He's just been yeah. You could 
I feel like you could talk to that guy about I, I honestly anything. wanted to ask, and I didn't, I mean, I thought about it. I almost asked it several times, but I was like, no, it, it digresses too much. And then I even almost asked it at the end, and I was like, no, I want to keep it on subject. But, like, I want to find out when he was doing research on, like, I mean, because he's from New York, like, doing research on, like, crooked cops and all this stuff, if there was ever times when he felt not in danger, but threatened or anything like By that. Because no, that's not easy. I mean, he said, he said it himself when he talks about being – this isn't just writing a, like a fictional book. Like this is journalism. Right. And when you get into like crooked cops and mafia and stuff, as far as journalism goes. And at goes, that time he's writing it, those pieces about those people. I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm like, that. that's an interesting podcast or talk yeah. in and of itself. I would really like to do just the state of jur- journalism as it is today and just the general, you know, everything's misconstrued, you yeah, know. Those what, would be good questions dude, to ask too. Man, you what do you feel about current day journalism compared to... But then again, you have to be careful on what you say about that. True, true. <laughs> We're not very careful anyways, on what we man, say on here, man. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. But, but yeah, but it is what it is, man. Ralph Blumenthal, thanks for coming on, man. You guys, definitely all, all the plugs for Ralph will be down below in the links below on YouTube. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, you're going to have to hop over onto the YouTube channel. Click those links, man. Or just uh, go to Ralph ralphlewenthal.com. Yeah. yeah, and just check out his book. It's, it's a good book. We had a great conversation. Just support him and, and his works. Um, next week we do have a very interesting guest coming on. It's just someone that I know I met just here recently at work. Um, it's an estate lawyer. So for anyone out there who has questions about, uh, what happens when you die, what happens to your stuff? A lot of those things are unknown, man. And we don't really, not like your soul. You're talking about the, like your house. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Your car, your house, the money, the money. What happens when you die? Monetarily. Where you go. The money. Monetarily and legally, I guess legally is the best way to state that what happens which sounds boring but it's actually pretty interesting to think that when you die right now the government may take all your stuff and your family might not get any of it so i have no idea something to look into i'm married with two kids and i don't i don't have anything besides you don't have a living will no no so i'm just i'm excited to have So next week might be really good for you yeah for all of us man and all of our listeners because i don't think it's something that people fancy really they don't really think about it they don't do it just one of those things. Probably a small percentage of Americans actually take that seriously. But anyways, get prepared for that next week. The best thing you guys can do for this video is like it, share it, um, and then just give it. Yeah, share it to all your friends. That's the best thing that you can do um, because that's really what we're fighting right now. Lick with, it, laugh yeah. it, love it. One day, Talk Junkies will be an authoritative news source, baby. Just for podcasts. Just no, for podcasts. No, yeah. <laughs> just no, for no, the no. people that we have on, man, because those people no. are these people are legit, not us. When you say yeah, authoritative we're, we're, we're not legit. news source. The people, no, that's, a, that's the best way to put it, is the people we have on are legit. We're not. We are not. We're yes. not legit. <laughs> and that's what I we're said. Not. You guys, you yeah, said no. Yeah, you didn't give me a chance. That's beautiful. You didn't yeah. give me a chance to finish. Yeah. But, again, hit, hit that like button. Hit the subscribe button to all our junkies out there. Stay fly and ring the bell.